All right. Well, we are in this series uh, called How to Read the Bible. And each week we're looking at, we're taking an adverb. We have um, theologically, the Bible is a God book, it's not a new book, we read it all about God. We've had, we read the Bible Christologically, the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is God's first and final word. Uh, we've had reading the Bible uh, historically. The Bible is a historical book, so what does it mean to read it and process it well, responsibly, as a historical book? And textually, the actual words on the actual page actually matter. What does it mean to take the, the, the word seriously, the literary quality of the Bible seriously? And today, uh, we're going to do redemptively. Next week, we're going to do communal. Now, where did Pastor Charlie give all of these adverbs? Well, all of these things we can find in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, which is our primary text for this series. Uh, we're going to read it together. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Let's read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 aloud. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. He had provided purification for sins. He sat down with the right hand of the majesty. I will read our secondary text for today, Matthew 19, 3 through 8. Some Pharisees came to him, it is Jesus, to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? He replied. At the beginning, the creator, haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Okay, reading the Bible redemptively. What is all of that about? Well, reading the Bible redemptively means we need to take into account everything that we have learned so far in this series about how to read the Bible. We've learned, based on this text, I uh, don't want to be too repetitive here, but we've learned theologically, it's all about God. In the past, God, God is the one who spoke. 
we learn uh, Christologically um, that Jesus, God's Son, is God's you know final word, the first and final word. These last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ, who has appointed heir of all things. Historically, uh, God spoke in the past, in the past to our ancestors, various times in many ways. It's historically and textually, God is speaking. There are words involved. So we've learned all of this. Well, if we take all of these principles, if you will, that the Bible is a God book, if the Bible is a Jesus book, if the Bible is a historical book, and if the Bible is a piece of literature, we put all of these things together and we read it with the belief that it truly is all of these things, then what we have as a result is what we could call a redemptive hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a big word. Um, that might be one of those words that might cause you to tune out. Hold on, don't tune out. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of how we read and process information. So if we have a redemptive hermeneutic, that means we read the Bible redemptively. Well, okay, Charlie, great. It's the application of everything we've learned so far. What do you mean? <laughs> well, let me, let's, let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I'll stop repeating the titles of sermons, and we'll actually look at the text. It starts off, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many and in various ways. That's the written word, the word of the prophets. That's Prophet Hebrews is talking about the Bible here. It's God's written word. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And through whom he, through whom also he made the universe. This is the living word, Jesus, the living word. This living word is the agent through which creation happened. And then it goes on to say that um, in verse three that after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of Majesty in heaven. So this living word is the first word, and it's the last word. Jesus is, according to the Bible, the first, final, greatest word of God. What is the word of God? Well, it's Jesus Christ and the scriptures that bear witness to him. That's the first thing that we need to know if we want to read the Bible well. But next, we know that Jesus, as God's word, he accomplishes God's purposes and expresses God's heart to us. I'm speaking to you to express myself to you. And these words, words that we speak are meant to do something. We speak in order to get things done. And this text shows us that. It says that the sun is the radiance. Well, it says that through the sun, God made the universe. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He expresses who God is. Says that the Son is sustaining all things by His powerful Word, 
And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of heaven. Jesus shows us who God is. Jesus accomplishes God's purpose because he is God's first and final and ultimate word. Now, these purposes of God that Jesus accomplishes, what we see here in the text, we see creation. He's the word through whom God created the world. We see a nod to the fall because there was sin involved. And we see of redemption and restoration. Jesus is the one who made purification for sins. So much so that he finished the job and he sits down at God's record. So, put all of this together. Jesus is God's ultimate word who shows us who God is. He's the means by which God expresses himself to us. And when God expresses himself to us through Christ, we look at Christ and what do we see? We see a story of redemption, of a world that was created, a world that was created good, a world that fell into the bondage of sin, and then a world of people who were liberated by Jesus, the Redeemer. He purified this sin. In a world that's being made new until the day of Christ Jesus, when all things that he had accomplished become visible and actualized before our eyes. So, we read the Bible redemptively because Jesus, the Redeemer, is not only the big idea of the Bible, He is all through the Bible. He underlines the Bible. He upholds the Bible. He's the one doing all the work. The Bible is the word of Christ. And Christ is the word of God. You you see this? So when we read the Bible, we're not just reading an ancient text. We're not just reading an ancient text about Jesus. We're not just reading an ancient text about Jesus who chose us who God is. When we read the Bible, we are interacting with a tool, with a tool from God's tool belt. And that tool is a redemptive tool. That tool does redemption because it belongs to Jesus, the Redeemer. Do you see it? I hear some, I can telepathically hear some. Maybe. <laughs> All right, let's just keep going. And I think that I'll keep trying to describe this in different ways, and I think hopefully you'll hit it. First of all, let's talk about redemption. Redeemer is a Christian ease word. Redemption is a word that we use. And there's the Shawshank redemption, it was awesome. Uh, but redemption, what, what are we talking about here? Remember back during Advent, we did a whole uh, a whole day on this. When we were reading about Mary's song, the Magnificat, from Luke chapter 1. And she prayed. Remember the angel Gabriel told her she would conceive miraculously your son. 
you be the one that saves people from their sins. She said, she broke out in a song, and she said, sorry, gone. No, not Mary, Zachariah. Remember Zachariah? I'm sorry. Angel appears to Zachariah and says, your wife, Elizabeth, will conceive, have a son, his name will be John. And he's going to be the one who announces that God is saving people from their sins. And Zechariah breaks out in this song and he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up the horn of salvation in the house of David. Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hates us. Showing mercy to our ancestors, remembering his holy covenant. And oath he swore to Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies to enable us to serve him without fear, holiness, and righteousness before him all of our days. Remember this? Okay. Uh, we talked about Zachariah's song singing about God coming to redeem the people. We talked about why is it that this angel told Zechariah that, that uh, he's going to have a son, he's going to be a prophet, he's going to announce this redeemer. And Zechariah all of a sudden starts singing about the nation's enemies, Start singing about the people being free to serve God without fear, God's horn of salvation. It's because in Zechariah's Old Testament brain, the idea of God redeeming the people and was integrally connected with the idea of God freeing the people from their, from their physical, visible oppressors. So in Zechariah's Old Testament brain, when God comes to save people, and redeem them, he comes to liberate the people from those that oppress them. Zacharias line would have been the Romans. But it doesn't just stop there. He also brings them to himself and enables them to serve him without fear. So God is not just redeeming them from their outside circumstances. He's redeeming them from their inside bondage. In Zacharias' Old Testament brain, all of these things came together. And remember we talked about how Zacharias didn't make that stuff up. He got it from reading his Bible. In the Bible, when God introduces himself to the world, he introduces himself by doing what? By going to answer the cries of his people in bondage in Egypt. And with a strong, outstretched arm, redeeming them, liberating them from their oppressors. And then bringing them to himself where he establishes a covenant. So in the Old Testament world, the idea of redemption, God redeeming a people, it's tied up with God freeing people from oppression. Freeing people from uh, those that would uh, enslave them. It says in Exodus 6 that God came to redeem the people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. That language is um, sort of playing off of an imagery of the ancient world. The ancient world, usually when people talked about redeeming somebody else with something, uh, it would usually went like this. I went and redeemed so-and-so from the slave market with money from my wallet. <laughs> you're, you're using uh, your resources, your money, or I redeemed them with uh, my strength because I went and conquered their you know, 
their oppressive king. But the with is the tool, right? So God says to the people of Israel, I redeemed you with my strong arm, which is why it's so exciting when we get to Isaiah. And Isaiah, the prophet, identifies God's strong arm with the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who's going to come and die on the cross to redeem, liberate his people. Okay, I'm being repetitive, and I think you got it. Here's the point. Jesus in the Bible is not just God's son. He is our liberating king. He is the one that purchases purchases our freedom from the slave market. He is the strength of God who slays the Egyptians. He is the one who comes to save us from our inner bondage, like we prayed before. And he is the one who saves us from our outer bondage. Now, that doesn't always work out the way we might imagine it would. But he is sitting on a throne, making all things new. He is renewing the world and making everything right. Jesus is the Redeemer. So Jesus is God's ultimate word. Jesus is the Redeemer. These are who he is. Now, this word bears witness to him. This word is his word. It's his instrument. And this word does what he wants it to do. So when we read our Bibles, we are not just interacting with the historical text, a religious text, with something that looks like this. We are interacting with God's tool for liberation. It's meant to do something. Someone years ago, probably my grandpa or my dad or somebody, told me that it's really important to get the right tool for the right job. I guess you could sit there and you can try to hammer in a nail with a screwdriver, but it's not really going to work right, is it? No. Screwdrivers are for screwing screws. Nails are hammered by hammers, right? This Bible is a tool that serves a purpose. Now, why is all of this important? Well, all of this is important because we, as the people of God, we, as people who struggle with sin, we, as human beings, have a bad habit of using this tool for the wrong job. Even when we're trying to do it right, we often use it the wrong way. And when we do that, not only is it inefficient to accomplish its purposes, but also people can get hurt. If you try to hand my nails with a screwdriver all day, at some point you're going to miss the, the head of the nail and you're going to hit your thumb, or you're going to cut your hand, or worse. And when we use this tool the wrong way, not only does it not work, people get hurt. Okay, Charlie, that's awesome, that's great. Let's bring this out of ideal land. How does this work? Well, I want to show you how this works, and I think the best way to do that is to show you Jesus putting redemptive hermeneutics in action. Where did, where did Pastor Charlie get this idea that we should read the Bible redemptively? Well, uh, we got it from Jesus. Jesus shows us how to do this. Look at the passage in Matthew 19. On your worship guide. 
Some Pharisees, well, Jesus was out. I should have put a bookmark here. Maybe I did. Oh, I did. Wow. Jesus was out in Matthew 19, and he is, uh, he's been teaching, and he's out in Judea near the Jordan River. Large crowds are all around him, and he had been healing He was doing his ministry. And it says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. Pharisees, remember those guys? Very often we paint those as the bad guys in the Bible, and very often they are. Um, But the Pharisees were sort of a religious, political group, and their whole thing was they wanted to read their Bibles seriously. They wanted to take it seriously. They they took it very literally, very seriously. They were Bible people. Uh, If the Pharisees went to a church, it would be called like, like, you know, uh, Southeast Judea Pharisee Bible Church or something like that. And you would go and they would hand you, this is, this is the most literal Bible translation, and our pastor preaches word for word from the text, and we go through and we take all of this as literally as possible. So maybe that helps you get an idea of who the Pharisees were. And, and that's good. These are good old Bible people. That's awesome. But they come to Jesus and they come to him to test him. They wanted to see which side Jesus would fall on of a particular issue. They asked him a question about the Mosaic law as it relates to marriage and divorce. Now, why did they bring this up? Well, they brought it up because in their time, there was a huge debate between two different rabbinical schools as to what were the acceptable grounds for a man to divorce his wife. One rabbinical school said, uh, all you got to do, look, Moses wrote it down. Uh, it's in the Mosaic Law. You just got to write her a certificate that says, wife, we are now divorced. Give it to her. It doesn't matter what your reasons are. It doesn't matter what happened. You're divorced. The man has all the power. He just has to write it down, give it to her, and you're divorced. That's it. One school said that. Another rabbinical school said, no, you know, it really, it really shouldn't be like that. It's a lot more complicated than that. And to tell you the truth, I don't understand all the nuances of the other side, but I know that in Jesus' day, among Pharisees and among the religious elite, this was a hot debate. This was what we would call today a plumb line issue or a line in the sand issue. Now, we have this. These are the kinds of things that churches split over. These are the kinds of things when new pastors come up for ordination exams, they ask, which side of this debate are you on? Because we want to know, uh, because where you are on this particular issue is going to signal to us where you fall on lots of different issues. So in our day, uh, plumb line or line in the sand issues would be um, like, what is the nature of the charismatic gifts? Should we be speaking in tongues in church or not? That one was real hot back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's calmed down a little bit, but it's still a thing. Another one that is real hot, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and still today, is what does the Bible say about women in leadership, women in ministry? What's open for a woman to do at the church? Or what is a woman's role in a marriage? And Christians read their Bibles, and we, we come down on different sides to make this a plumb line issue. Where a pastor or a church or where a group of people, where they fall on that one issue, that's going to be signal to us what kind of church, what kind of Christian we are. 
Another one that's big in our day is uh, things related to LGBTQ, people who would identify as LGBTQ. What does the Bible say about these books? What can they do in the church? What's their role? What should we call them? How should we welcome them? These are plumb line issues. Now, I don't want to get lost in those here, but I want you to know that what they asked Jesus to test him was that serious and that hot of a cultural issue. And just like with those issues, many of us who've been in church for a long time, many of us who've learned about our, our own church and our denomination, where all of our things are, we know the Bible verses to go to, to, to tend our views. We believe this because of these verses. We believe this because of these verses. The Bible says it. And then people on the other side of these issues, they love the Bible too. They'll, they'll quote the Bible and say no, because the Bible says this. This is this. So, plumb line issues. The Pharisees come to Jesus to test him. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Notice what Jesus says. First, he says, haven't you read? Uh, they're already alluding to a Bible passage. Where Moses talks about the certificate of divorce. But Jesus stops him. Are you not reading the Bible? That's fascinating to me. And then listen to what Jesus says. He says, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. He's quoting from Genesis 2. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You may say, okay. Jesus is uh, sort of answering our question. Uh, I guess he's saying that what God joins together, people can't separate, so the man can't just give his wife a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. Marriage is deeper than that. But what about this Bible verse? So they say, why did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So what about the Bible? And Jesus replied, and here's the kicker. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus shows these Pharisees, these Pharisees who love their Bible. The Bible says it, that settles it, that's what we're doing. They came to Jesus. There's this plumb line issue we got the Bible on our side. What do you think? And what Jesus does is he says, haven't you read the Bible? It's like Jesus is saying, stop quoting the Bible and start reading the Bible. Haven't you read that in the beginning, God established it this way? Man and woman together bearing God's image. Man and woman sharing, woman sharing this mutual fellowship before God as one flesh. And marriage is God who joins them together. So don't let man separate that. Jesus is showing them that what God establishes at the beginning was one way. And then sin entered the world. 
and turned it into something else. So Moses, writing by God using Moses many times, various ways, God spoke through the prophets. God writes to address this problem of sin messing up marriage. And what God does, does he tell them, does he tell Moses to write down the end product, the end game, the, the final goal of what everything is supposed to be? No. He tells Moses to write down a law that hard-hearted people can understand and can follow. To move what was going on in Israel related to marriage one step in the direction of redemption. Marriage isn't going to be fixed. Jesus knows. Through people looking at a list of rules and trying to do it right. Marriage needs to be fixed by sinful hearts being renewed according to the gospel. People being free from sin, following Jesus into a new world. So the law that Moses did wasn't actually describing God's ultimate intent for marriage. The law that Moses gave was meant to restrain the evil hearts of people, to curb the spread and the power of sin in the world. God's ultimate plan for marriage is here. But what he tells Moses in the Old Testament to write is down here one step on the road to God's ultimate plan. So he looks these Pharisees in the eye. These people, these good Bible-believing people, they wanted to take it literally. They wanted to do everything it said. That they wanted to as seriously as they could, Jesus looks at them and he says, you're reading it wrong. The problem wasn't that the Pharisees didn't have a high view of Scripture. That was good. The problem is they were trying to use the tool of Scripture for the wrong job. And then they missed Scripture's meaning. When God told Moses, look, Everybody's just walking away from their wives. You guys are on the road to Canaan where marriage is this, this loose, crazy thing. and The women have no rights. All the guys are just doing whatever they want. They're taking multiple wives. Look, if, if, if a man wants to divorce his wife, make him sit down and make an actual decision. Make him write it down on table. Then make him walk up to his wife, look her in the eye, and give it to her. That way, the evil inclination of his heart is at least curved a little bit. And then this woman isn't just kicked out of the house to go and be accused of leaving her husband, to be accused of adultery, to be accused of all kinds of things. She will have a certificate where she can show she is the innocent party. She's protected. They took this law that was meant to be a step on the road to redemption and they turned it into a license to do evil. Isn't it true that we can just divorce our wives for any and whatever reason? We just have to write a certificate. You see how they inverted it? Now, if the whole world lived by the way that the Pharisees had interpreted Moses' words to write a certificate of divorce literally and word for word, would that be a redemptive thing going on among God's people? No. It would be a binding thing. 
The evil in the hearts of men wouldn't be restrained. All we have to do is write a letter. The women around that time wouldn't be protected like they were in ancient Canaan where polygamy was the rule. But here in Jesus' day, in the secular, if you will, culture and marriage has shifted. The way that God's original plan is communicated and applied and the way that God moves the people one more step forward is what Jesus actually refers to here. Now, for those of us that grew up in cultures of the Bible says it, that settles it, that's what we're doing, this is a little unnerving. Pastor Charlie, are you saying that we're not supposed to do what the Bible says to do? How, how do we keep this from, how, how, if we just adopt this, and we can just make the Bible says whatever, whatever we want it to say? Brothers and sisters, I think the Pharisees would have felt the same way. But what about Moses? Jesus says, haven't you read? So imagine we were going all together on a hike. And we were going on a hike to this place on the top of the mountain, beautiful and open and wondrous, where everything is good, everything is right, and we can just frolic in the meadows and be free from all sadness. <laughs> so we're hiking here together. And you show up at the trailhead, and there's a guide to guide us on the trail. And that guide comes up to you, comes up to me and all of us, and he has each one of us a map. He says, here's the map, here's the trail. Would you look at it, would you read it? Now, everybody have your map? Now follow me to the top. And then he starts walking. Now, what would happen if some of us took our map, which is, by the way, the map is the Bible, and the jail guy is Jesus. We took our map and we said, oh, thank you. I'm ready to follow you. And we just start walking wherever. I have my map. We read it like this. We can't see the guy. Many of us have learned to read our Bibles like this. We take our eyes off of Jesus. We put them on the Bible, and we expect this to save us. This can and will never save you. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Liberator. Jesus is the Redeemer. This is his word. This is his tool. This is his man. But he's the God. Now, what would happen if Jesus come along with the trail God? Here's your map, and follow me. What if we took the map and we said, oh, that's great. Now, what happens when, he, when we can't see where he's going as he's a little bit far ahead? What happens when he turns a corner and we need to... What happens when we can't discern where exactly the trail guy is going? And we have, we have the map behind our back because we just, we just think it's not that important. I mean, Jesus is the one who does all the work. And this, is, this is an old historical book, and I don't really like what it says anyway. And you have to read it, and I'm not a reader. So, back here, we're following Jesus. What happens when we can't see him? But just like these people are lost. And many of us have learned to read our Bibles like this. 
But Jesus is teaching us how to do here. Read the Bible redemptively. Is to have an open ear and have one eye on the text and one eye on him. He says, here's your man, now follow me. We can apply this, these principles to lots of different issues. And you know, unlike reading our Bibles like this, sometimes when we try to read the Bible redemptively and apply it to hard things like what are spiritual gifts, what's the role of women in ministry, how should we regard our LGBTQ friends and neighbors? How should we do all this in church together? Sometimes the answer is not to our questions are not clear right away. Sometimes we struggle and struggle and struggle and other Roman Christians come up with different answers. Sometimes we come up with an answer and say this is the best we have and we're on our map and we're following Jesus. But maybe, maybe later it's different. All of those things are okay. God has not called us to certainty. He's called us to trust. We're not saved from our sins because we're certain about everything. We don't go to heaven because we get good theology. No, we're saved from our sins when we're joined to Christ by faith, which is trust. So, to wrap all this up, what does all of this have to do with what we're doing here today? I think there's really two big applications. The first one is for each of us in our own walk with God, our own salvation. Maybe some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, oh man, I think maybe I've been reading the Bible wrong. Maybe I was looking to certainty about the text to save me and make me right with God. To each person here, I want to tell you, Jesus is the Redeemer. Trust him to save you. Read your Bible. It's a big deal. But look to Christ. The second application, I think, is that maybe some of us are realizing we need to learn how to read our Bibles a little bit differently. And maybe even though we are trusting Jesus for our salvation, um, we put a little bit too much trust in having the right kind of knowledge using the right Bible verses, interpreting exactly the right way to make us better than other Christians. And I'm not sure if it's a liberating thing. If we're on this hike, on this trail to the top of the mountain with Jesus, every single step matters. We haven't arrived yet. And I guess maybe there's a third application which we're going to get to next week. We're going to talk about reading the Bible communion. We don't apply the redemptive hermeneutic solo. We read this in the context of community of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates the text in our hearts. He uses us to check and balance each other's interpretation, helping us to follow Jesus together. We heed the voices of the church that was before us. We've gone to the creeds and councils. We're going on this together. So, 
to close. Um, God loves you. He sent Jesus, his word, to redeem you and set you free. Read your Bible.